Greetings and welcome to Lantondogia Podcast. On today's episode, we have Natalie Wade, who is the Director of Domestic and Sexual Violence Programs at Doorways. More about Doorways from today's episode. Um, we have Natalie, uh, who's a director of domestic and sexual violence programs at Doorways. And first of all, we'd like to thank you for uh, taking the time and uh, uh, attending our event and, and for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yes. So um, just to start, Natalie, why don't you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what Doorways does? Okay. So um, my name is uh, Natalie Wade, and um, I am the Director of Domestic and Sexual Violence Programs at, uh, at Doorways. Um, so Doorways as a, as a whole organization actually does quite a bit for the citizens of Arlington County. Um, so we um, started out as um, an agency serving uh, the homeless population in Arlington. We still have um, a homeless organization um, uh, within the, or sorry, a home, homeless program within the organization. Um, and actually part of that program is um, our transitional aged youth uh, program, which uh, serves um, homeless people from ages 18 to, tw- to 24 years old. Uh, and then we also have our revived counseling program, which provides, um, you know, brief uh, trauma-focused counseling for uh, survivors of, of domestic and sexual violence, um, as well as uh, their family members and um, any, you know, any children that have um, have experienced uh, some of that trauma as well. And then we have our domestic and sexual violence program. So uh, we serve um, anybody that is a survivor of domestic and sexual violence in in Arlington County. And we do that in multiple ways. So um, we have a 24-7 hotline, um, which is our point of entry into into the program. So part of that is, uh, you know, answering the hotline for callers, finding out what their needs are, helping to safety plan, um, and then uh, coordinating services as needed. Um, Another aspect of the hotline is actually conducting our intake interviews and our imminent danger assessments to see if um, the people that are calling, uh, especially for domestic violence, um, are eligible to come into into our shelter. Uh, so we have an 18 bed shelter. So we have um, we can serve uh, either 18 individuals or, or families as needed. Uh, we also take uh, men into our shelter as well. And um, through you know calling our hotline, they can uh, survivors can actually obtain other services in our program. Some of those include our court advocacy program. So uh, we have two court advocates that help people with protective orders, um, obtaining uh, those protective orders, going to court. Um, And then also we have um, our case management program, which is housed within our uh, shelter. Um, And so that helps our case managers actually help our clients as they come into shelter to, um, you know, create stability uh, within their lives and safety uh, so that way when they leave shelter, they can, um, you know, sort of begin to rebuild. Um, We also have our hospital accompaniment program. So anybody that's calling our hotline to seek a domestic or sexual violence forensic exam 
can actually uh, participate in our hospital accompaniment program where we help coordinate uh, and sorry, we help coordinate an appointment for them at the uh, Inova Fairfax um, uh, Facts Department um, and then actually have an advocate meet them out there to um, sit with them as they go through the exam, um, help them navigate that process and then provide follow follow on care as well. Um, a part of the program is actually coming into our shelter and where clients can obtain case management. Um, they can actually <clears throat> obtain financial counseling as well as uh, counseling for children. And, um, you know, the, the whole idea of this is to help them to create safety and stability so that when they leave the program, you know, they can, they can start uh, or continue that healing process from their trauma. And Got so it's a, it's a, wide-reaching <laughs> program. It is really a comprehensive program, sounds like, because as we, we had so many podcasts before, like we talked with Candace from Peace Project, and also we talked with people from I Know Effects. So I feel like our listeners kind of like understood what is like domestic violence, sexual assault. And we, I hope our listeners understood that it's not just a physical abuse it's like financial and mental and there's so many other different aspects that goes into this program and sounds like doorways is actually there to really provide comprehensive service so even if there's uh services that doorways couldn't provide then i would assume that you would refer the clients to different organization yes very much so so one uh one thing that we really do value um, is that holistic approach uh, to to our clients, which I, is is very important because um, you know it, well, and this was one of the things that really attracted me to this organization when I applied for this position. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me, is that um, you know I I've really you know I my in my background you know I have a lot of experience with domestic and sexual violence, but really this aspect of when somebody's leaving that situation, they essentially mm -hmm. become homeless and there's another complexity and dynamic that's added to their trauma. Um, that really, you know, the fact that we kind of offer both of those services really does help. Cool. So I think that's a good segue to ask, like, how did you start your career in this field? Like what made you to go into this field? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a long road, a long, <laughs> a long, uh, story. It was a journey. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I, uh, first graduated with my undergrad and was looking, you know, for kind of what I wanted to do next, I, uh, had taken a class actually on the history of the Vietnam war mm -hmm. and was, um, really affected by how, um, soldiers were treated upon return. And so I um, found a, a counseling program and really thought that, you know, I really wanted to go into trauma and, and mental health. Um, through that, I wound up studying abroad in Vietnam to really um, gain a, a sense of, you know, what the veteran population went through in a, um, in, in a country where we, you know, had a conflict. And part of that study abroad program was actually going to Cambodia. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one of those moments where I, I had a, like an epiphany. <laughs> um, so I was able to see um, just um, how 
the the regime of Pol Pot and um, the you know the fact that Cambodia had um, you know the the conflict was moving over into Cambodia as well, and it really just you know af affected the country even you know fifty years later. And so um, through that, I was actually um, exposed to um, in, in doing doing some of the research on Cambodia. Um, I was came across some research that um, really opened my eyes to chi child sex trafficking, mm -hmm. and um, and so that really um, it that again was one of those you know life changing moments where you know I I just knew that um, I wanted to devote my life to at least something to do with gender based violence, and so that led me to um, working for child protective services in Texas and a sexual uh, sexual abuse unit. Um, then I went and worked for, I still worked for the military, I still worked with the veteran population. Mm -hmm. I um, did, uh, I was a sexual assault victim advocate and then also worked in the family advocacy, uh, domestic violence program in the military. Um, came back here, uh, did that, did, uh, the sexual violence program again here and then, uh, wound up working for doorways. <laughs> That's great. So I'm wondering like how this, like different institutes, like address like domestic violence or intimate partners, sexual violence cases. I would assume they have different approaches and you would be a really great person to see like how these different institutes address it and prevent it and how they collaborate. Because the, one of the reasons why we are asking is in Mongolia, we have this child protection service and shelter and we try to like build this comprehensive protective service. So like it would be really good uh, topic to discuss. It's not really specific to Arlington County doorways itself, but I want to hear more about your perspective of like how society itself, like different institutes can work together to address this issue. Okay. Um, so one thing that I think has helped me in my career is having such diverse uh, experiences. So, you know, when I worked for, for, Child Protective Services, you know, our main goal was to ensure the safety of this child. And everybody had a had a role with, you know, the main goal of protecting this child. And, and we had to do it in different ways. You know, police had the law that they were upholding. You know, we had an investigation, but also making sure the child still had some sort of family unit at the end of, of our time with them, um, mm -hmm. you know, as much as possible. Um, and, and then, you know, within the army, um, and also the, the, the Navy, I worked for both, uh, both branches of, of the military. Um, you know, a, a big aspect of that was again, this goal of making sure that the, these people that had, um, you know, reported either domestic violence or, or sexual violence were getting the services that they needed, but everybody again had a different role. So we had, you know, our criminal investigation division that were, it was investigating the case and upholding the law. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, then uh, one of the main focuses or one of the biggest parts to play um, in these particular cases um, is the fact that there is a big role played by the commander of both the accused and or the person that is um, making the report. And so that can add a complexity and a dynamic to it. Um, and then of course, you know, working in the nonprofit world. So it, it's interesting because, um, you know, in, in taking a step back 
or um, I guess in looking at each of those individual things, um, you know, it, it, it can seem very different and there are complexities to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really in taking a step back, everybody, every one of those organizations had the same goal, which was ensuring that the person who needed help was getting the help that they needed and that they were safe. Um, and so that can really um, open up um, open up ideas and creativity in how to navigate in, in these systems that are so different. Mm-hmm. Um, so for instance, you know, in the, in the military, uh, you know, it's a very disciplined, uniformed, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, environment and there's not really a lot of room for going outside of, of, boundaries. And so it, it's interesting because I, the sexual assault program essentially had no rules, you know, had, didn't have any of those boundaries. So that was some, sometimes fun how to navigate, you know, a, a, uh, an environment that did have so much structure in a program that really didn't, you know, our, you know, we, we were able to do things that other organizations weren't able to do um, for the simple fact that we, you know, the, the main goal was we wanted that person to be safe. Um, so when, when we talk, when we think about how they differ, it's, it's almost differing in the approach. So, um, you know, and, and, and then also the point of entry into those services. So for child protective services, you know, we, we were a response and then prevention after when I worked for mm-hmm. the military, it was preventing and then response. And then here mm-hmm. in the nonprofit world, it's, it's, it's kind of both. Um, so I think that's, that's something that's really important to, to keep in mind. And, you know, it, it's the, the best way I've been able to approach it, especially in, you know, navigating these different roles in different environments is that, um, you know, remembering that everybody has a role and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we all, but, but uh, we all have a role, but our goal is the same. So our role may be different, but our goal is the same. And then that can really help to, um, navigate some of those issues that may be tough when, you know, you're building a program where people have different guidelines and different processes. Yeah. It's kind of like amazing to hear like how simple you put it there. It was like prevention and then um, awareness and then there was like awareness and prevention and also the protection comes in to play and then the doorways this nonprofit does is more of like a comprehensive holistic work and from it i think it's probably my personal opinion like i feel like the best way to deal with this kind of cases is to raise enough awareness and be able to do like primary prevention before things could happen so i know april is sexual assault awareness and prevention month so what kind of like prevention uh, activities that Darway is going to put out there or like what kind of prevention uh, activities that you would recommend for Lanton to take action on or maybe for our listeners to take action on individual level? So that's a that's a great question. Um, I will say that that right now what Doorways is doing is uh, really being dictated for for sexual assault awareness and prevention month is really being dictated by um, COVID-19. So we were not able to really get together and do some of those resource fairs that we participate in every year, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and some of the panels and group activities, which, you know, are, are, 
fun. And it, and I hate to, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, we're, I don't want to use fun and sexual violence in the same sentence, but it really does um, allow uh, those activities really do allow people to come together and start talking about issues that mm-hmm. very much are taboo and, and very taboo all over the world in every culture. And, um, and so I think those are some of the, the best ways for organizations to, to, to really start with that primary prevention, because if we're raising that awareness as a, as a whole, and we're normalizing those conversations, then parents can actually go home and talk to their kids about it. Um, because, you know, they've picked up some of that language that, you know, maybe they were too embarrassed to research themselves, or, you know, maybe they didn't really feel comfortable having that conversation with their child. And so it builds some of that confidence, um, you know, allowing people to really engage and normalize you know, that awareness together. And then they can take those bits and pieces that they learned and have those conversations with their, with their children or with their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing to see some of, um, some of the people even in my personal life where, <clears throat> you know, we'll, they thought one way when we very first started meeting and, you know, or, or when I very first started working in this field and, you know, now it's completely, you know, changed their, their way of thinking. Um, and so I think it's very important to just the, the best primary prevention technique that anybody can do is just to start having that conversation. Um, and, and realizing that it's going to be uncomfortable and being, um, able to sit in that uncomfortableness (laughs) in order to really start to have some of those tough conversations. Because if we, if we can do that, we can really just change the way we think about these issues and, and change the way that that we respond to these issues. Um, So I'll use, I'll give an example. You know, um, one of the things that was taught, um, especially when I first went to college was, um, all the, all the risk reduction techniques. So, you know, you, you go to freshman orientation and you learn to put the keys in between your fingers and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't go out alone and don't wear a a skirt that's too short. And basically we were being taught how not to be sexually assaulted. And if it happened, if, you know, even if we did all the things and it happened, um, then it was somehow our fault. So now we've started to change those conversations, um, you know, either through awareness and community events or engaging mm-hmm. with Title IX at universities, mm-hmm. um, to start to, to change that messaging that it's more about, sure, you can do those, those risk reduction techniques if you want, but here, here's where we need to start focusing is, um, you know, how we are, how we are teaching our sons and daughters to talk and think about sex and, you know, uh, how to talk and think about relationships and modeling what a healthy relationship looks like rather than, um, you know, subscribing to something that maybe isn't going to work or be effective, you know, for their development. So, um, I think if we really just start even reframing some of the messages we send, um, it starts to plant those seeds and really blossoms later on. I have a follow-up question on Title IX. Um, you know, coming from a different country as a foreigner, um, I, I, it was very interesting for me how the university tried to implement some of the measures of uh, raising awareness and uh, exercises uh, about uh, vi- domestic violence and sexual assault on campus. And uh, I went to the University of Alaska, and the year 
uh, I was in it. The state legislature mandated the uh, what is it called? Uh, virtual, you know, exercise for every mm-hmm. student. And there was a lot of uh, fireback from the students saying that though it is great for overall raising awareness, it doesn't do uh, great for, you know, for individual cases. For example, uh, some of the material could be uh, overly sensitive and, uh, you know, obviously it's not a topic that could be discussed in large groups because it could get very intimate. So I was wondering if you've seen in your experience some of the successful practices of implementing such um, such um, exercises? So I, um, I'll be completely honest. I'm not um, extremely familiar with Title IX other than, um, you know, having partnerships with some of the universities in this area. Uh, but I, I am familiar with some of the exercises that you're talking about and, um, you know, having those large group events. Um, and honestly, they, from what I've seen, what works best is those small in-person conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and here's why, you know, it, you have a group of people, um, you know, it's a, it's psychological that they're not really going to go against what their friends are saying, or they're not really going to um, step out of quote unquote line, you know? And so the, in these small group meetings where, you know, we're actually able to have, um, you know, in-depth conversations, what that allows that person to, you know, these smaller groups to do is to open up, um, to, you know, really start to reflect on the way that they're thinking. And then, um, what we see in the larger group is that mindset start to change, you know, where somebody, you know, maybe isn't, um, is being insensitive and isn't um, engaging in a way that is appropriate or healthy. Um, you, you know, again, it builds that confidence of the smaller groups to then say, this isn't okay. And it becomes a, it, it, it becomes where the bystander is actually, you know, stepping up and saying, you know, this, this behavior should not happen in this group. It's unacceptable. Got it. I was going through the website, uh, of Doorway's website, and some of the issues listed in it were sexual assault, domestic violence, and homelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, my question is, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about them, and what would you wish people knew more about? Um, so... That's a, a, that's a really good question. And I think each of those groups has, um, you know, domestic violence, sexual violence, and, and homeless population have misconceptions about each group. Um, and so one of the, one of the things that I, that I will say, you know, for, um, that I've seen working with homeless population is, um, you know, why don't they just go to a shelter? You know, why don't they just do this or why don't they just go get a job? And it is, it, it is amazing how difficult it can be if you are homeless. So um, like one example, if you're homeless, you don't have an address. If you don't have an address, you can't get a job. Um, so for, to answer that question of why don't you just go get a job, well, you don't have an address to put on that form, so, so you, you have to have that. Um, and then also, you know, if you aren't um, a lot of the requirements to come into shelters just for the simple fact of, 
you know, uh, having to obtain services for people coming into shelters, that they have to be a resident of the of the county, typically, um, that the shelter is in. And so if we have somebody that, you know, is not an Arlington resident, it's very hard to get them services because, um, you know, you have to be a resident. Um, some of the other misconceptions that, um, you know, I've seen uh, for domestic violence survivors is, well, why, why don't they just leave? Well, it's so hard. <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 the statistic for uh, leaving a domestic violence situation is that it takes um, seven times for someone to attempt to leave before they're able to. Um, also, it's, it's the most dangerous time when someone is uh, fleeing domestic violence. They're... Um, I think it, I think the last statistic I read is they're five, it's like 500 times more likely to die, uh, you know, in, as they're leaving a domestic violence situation and, and that they, you know, they're really, and that leads to another misconception that, well, they're not really telling the truth because they're, they're staying in it. I mean, obviously, um, another misconception is that, um, you know, this person, that is in this domestic violence relation, domestically violent relationship is that they don't love their partner. And, and they do a lot of times. I mean, they, you know, had to be attracted to that person and get in that relationship at some point, you know? And so a lot of times, you know, the, we're dealing with people that, um, you know, not only is it very hard for them to leave for all the reasons I just said, but also because they still have feelings and care about this person, even though it's, it's a, it's a, a, a terrible situation. Um, and then again, when we get into to sexual violence, a lot of the misconceptions you, that I see there is, you know, that the person uh, could have somehow stopped it or they should have somehow stopped it or they were um, engaging in behaviors where the assumption is that the person probably deserved it. And those are all things that are just just not true. Um, you know, a lot of times when somebody is having is is, is in being sexually assaulted, they have tons of different reactions that are not what we think we would do if we were in that situation. So, um, you know, people may freeze or they, um, you know, almost disassociate where they, they just want it to be over. So they, um, you know, go to a place in their mind where they can deal with it and they freeze and just, and mm -hmm. are, are just there. Um, so if we're thinking about, um, these misconceptions and, and things that I would want people to know is that, these are people that we're dealing with that are, you know, if any one of us um, on this podcast could have at any point in time be homeless or, um, you know, find ourselves in a, a relationship that's unhealthy and, and you know, is domestic, uh, domestic violence or at any point in time may be a victim of sexual assault. And I think it's really important for people to understand that these, these are things that um, affect most of the people we know, I mean, I, I can say that any one of us knows somebody, whether we know it or not, that is a domestic or sexual violence survivor or came very close to being homeless or was homeless at some point in their life. Yeah. That is actually a great reminder because we kind of like, even in my personal like stories, like talking to my friends or just observing others we kind of act like that this issue is never going to happen to us but it's like like you said it could happen to anyone regardless of our gender or our ethnicity or like or what kind of job we hold like it's like 
anybody could experience it. Maybe that's the really big message that we have to like tell people. Like, it's not like them against us. It's never gonna happen to me. So, thank you for like highlighting that again. Of course. Yeah, and, I mean, I think. It's, it's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I <laughs> know. Uh, and so, and that's just. With that, I just want to ask, like, what uh, if you know the data? Like, uh, what is the percentage of uh, male clients in doorways? Like, because we kind of think that men are the uh, the main predators, and it's true. But I feel like the men could be actually in like abusive relationship. So. So um, male survivors and, uh, and for domestic and sexual violence, um, it, it's severely underreported. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, that's a really big issue because what that does is it creates um, this trauma that just compounds upon on this person. So mm-hmm. um, I said before, you know, we do um, help male survivors. We've had uh, mm-hmm. men in our shelter before. And, um, it, you know, it, it it's important to know um, let me, the, that it, it is so underreported. And a lot of that comes from, um, you know, the, this idea that men are supposed to be able to defend themselves and, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the, these misconceptions that, that go around that surround that, you know, um, I'll, I'll have an example. I, uh, when I worked for the military um, in the family violence program, um, you know, one of the things that we would hear said is, well, ha, like that, that, that's not true. There's no domestic violence in that situation. He's, he's a soldier. He's, you know, <laughs> six feet tall and he fights wars and look at his wife. You know, his wife is five, two and a hundred pounds. She can't hurt him. Well, I mean, in reality, the thing the what was happening was, is she was hitting him with things like with weapons and, and he wasn't hitting her back because he is, he's a trained killer. Like he's not going to hit her back because it, mm-hmm. the, the consequences are going to be so much. And so, um, you know, it, he, he was a survivor of domestic violence just based off of some of the contextual things. So the, it, it, it becomes a really big issue when people aren't coming forward um, because, um, because of those nuances and because of the, uh, what society says, you know, a man should be. Yeah. And I would wonder, like, uh, again, domestic violence, it could be physical, mental and financial. So it's like, I'm sure there are a lot of male survivors who experienced like mental abuse, financial abuse. So and those cases are probably underreported. And maybe they don't even think that it's a domestic violence issue. Well, so that's, that's very true. A lot of times, um, you know, we have people that will call and um, call our hotline and say, mm-hmm. this is going on, but I know I'm not really a survivor. I know that I'm not, I know this isn't a domestic violence. And that's like, it very much is domestic violence. You know, mm-hmm. if, um, the, this is very uh, uh, reduced. It's, it's, this is a much more uh, complex issue, but the, but the thing that I would want listeners to take away from this is that if somebody is using anything whether that be finances, a job, uh, immigration status, mm-hmm. um, sexuality, gender. It, it, if anybody's using anything as a way to control another person that, mm-hmm. it, that they're in a relationship with, that is domestic violence. 
Um, I have a question about that, and this is something that you know concerns most of the immigration, uh, uh, most of the people from immigration communities. Um, if somebody wants to contact doorways, will they be asked their immigration status? So no, um, we uh, you know we might ask them if they you know need help, like if they. They won't be asked. Typically, they tell us <laughs> because typically that is um, what is being that's part of the domestic violence. They're calling us to say, you know, I like this situation is going on, but I can't leave this person because they keep threatening to have me deported. And so mm -hmm. um, that's where we, you know, as an organization, make sure we're stepping up and, you know, helping them to get connected to the services they need so that they can apply for the correct visas and, and those types of things. Follow-up question. A lot of, like, immigrant um, victims, maybe they would be afraid to um, ask for help because the, the, the partner could be... Uh, partner could be in trouble if they report the domestic violence issue so like what if I'm immigrant lady and like we are like undocumented and if I call doorways and report the domestic violence issue well my partner will be in trouble like would the Arlington County Police will go in and maybe uh, start a case against him because Virginia State do have the right to like start that case mm -hmm if I understood it correctly. So um, are, are you asking like how we respond to that or? In my opinion, I feel like maybe one of the, the obstacles or barriers for undocumented victims to reach out help is maybe they're afraid that if they contact people, tell what's happening to others, um, it's they're going to come and take the partner away and they don't want to be that shameful wife or someone who called the cop on their special okay someone's and yeah. it's like how do you deal with that um social and cultural stigma like I, i'm 100 percent sure there's like some people who don't ask for help because they don't want to hurt the the partner so it, it, I would say that that's a, I mean, a hundred percent, that's a great assumption um, because mm -hmm. it's something that prevents many people from com coming forward, mm -hmm. um, both, both uh, with immigration status, with jobs, you know, especially if we have um, many times, you know, in uh, domestic violence relationships, we have one person that's relying on the other for, for their income. So if you get kids involved, it can be something that is a, is a huge barrier to coming forward. So the way we work with that with our clients is, um, you know, if there's a, a couple of things that, that we can do. So, you know, if somebody's uh, calling but doesn't want to come into shelter, they don't, you know, want to make a police report, they don't have to. Our services are client-led, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, we kind of use the metaphor of the client's driving the car. We mm -hmm. are um, the GPS, you know, we're helping them navigate. Um, and so that's, it's extremely important for people that may seek services with us to understand that they are not going to have to, they are not going to have to do anything that they don't want to do in terms of, um, you know, if they don't want to report it to the police, they don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, 
if they don't want to even leave the situation, they don't have to. We can still help them to safety plan on the hotline. And we have a mm-hmm. mobile advocacy program, um, you know, where one of our mobile advocates can actually um, reach out and help them, you know, if, if necessary, if that's something that they're interested in. They don't have to get um, a protective order if they don't want one. Um, mm-hmm. so basically, it, you know, we think about you know, people that get into the field of domestic violence, we want these uh, survivors and victims to leave the situation and to start to rebuild. But one thing I think that is important, really important for people to understand is that creating safety for someone or helping somebody to create safety doesn't always mean that they're going to leave the relationship. Um, And so it's really helping that person to find what their goal is and helping them to reach it. Now, does that sometimes mean that we have to say, well, you know, your goal is this, but you, you know, you're telling me you don't want to do that. You know, we're going to have to come up, you know, with a way to, um, to bridge that gap between those two things. But at at no point in time would anybody have to do something that they didn't feel comfortable with, um, in terms of, you know, calling the police or anything like that. That's great to know because so it's like, for example, the the clients, they would be able to call in and get the information and get the safety plan through the hotline. And even if they decide to come in and get the shelter service and or get other services, they may still do so without reporting the case to the police. Yes. Now, I will say there are some times where we um, we have to report it if there's Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if there's children involved that are witnessing the violence, um, you know, if there's, uh, if the person says, you know, that they're going to be, um, you know, if they're like harming themselves or that kind Mm -hmm. of thing, you know, we may have to then report it. But also Mm -hmm. if somebody's calling us and, um, you know, we we may ask their name when they call um, Mm -hmm. the hotline, but if they don't want to give it to us, that's completely okay. Okay. So they can be as anonymous as they want when calling the hotline. When calling the hotline, that's great. And how, like, how many of the hotline callers are like bystanders? Because um, I think sometimes, like, if one of my friends asks me a help, like, I don't want to give that person the wrong information. So, in order to help my friend, I want to be like educated. So. I, I assume that I would be able to like call the hotline and get information on like how to relay this resources and information to my friend who's in an abusive relationship in a right way. Yes, definitely. And um, one of the things when we do, because we do often have uh, friends or uh, advocates, um, mm-hmm. people from the person's church will call and say, this is going on. I don't know mm-hmm. what to do. Um, how do we help them? And so we, we actually help that person come up with some resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the questions we ask on the hotline is, does, you know, is the person wanting these resources? And then if, you know, if it's, well, I don't know, it's, you know, we start to help them to kind of come up with a way to present it in a way that keeps that other, keeps their friend safe. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, you know, giving them the information and the tools that they can maybe start to really look at their, you know, their situation to see if they want to leave or make changes or safety plan or that kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool. 
Um, well, just because Lanton de Hope, we're like doing this podcast, we're trying to reach out our local Mongolian community in DMV area. Like, I want to ask, like, how many Mongolian like clans have doorways served so far? Do you have any data on that? Um, so is that also? Uh, sorry about that. I just want to clarify if it's something, if it's uh, what is it called? If it's a public information or it's uh, what's the opposite of public? Um, confidential. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was wondering if it's a confidential information, and if it is, we just don't want to put you in the position. Just want to clarify that. So um, I can tell you that we do track demographic information if people mm-hmm. are willing to share it. So I, I will say, um, you know, when I run our reports and that kind of thing, a lot of times um, the um, ethnicity of the person is unknown and it's uh-huh. because they didn't care. Um, so we don't track specific, um, specifically Mongol women or, um, you know, Arabic or, or um, you know, it's specific uh, nationality? Yes. Um, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Specific nationalities, we track more um, regionally based. So, okay. you know, we have people from Asia, we have mm-hmm. people from, you know, um, and so that that's how we track um, our numbers. So I, I can say that we, you know, do have um, a pretty diverse group of people that call the hotline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I think that's, I think that's really great because I, I will say, you know, I came from Texas. I lived in Germany for a while and, um, Arlington is the most diverse place I've ever lived. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, it's, it's great that we, um, because one of the things that we really value at doorways is learning about our community and really making sure that we, um, you know, if we're interacting with somebody from a culture we're not familiar with learning about that culture and, you know, engaging in a way that promotes equity and promotes inclusiveness, um, you know, rather than saying, this is a domestic violence shelter, this is how you'll be in this shelter. It's, well, how can we work with you? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, in a way that makes you the most comfortable. And just to make sure that doorway services, it's free to the public, right? Or is there any like costs associated with any of the services? We are absolutely free. Yes. And the best way to reach you is, um, I'm looking at the website, it's 703-237-0881. Yes, that's our uh, 24-7 hotline. Got it. Our, uh, unfortunately, the, the episode is coming to its end. And our last question would be, what would be one thing that you would want the uh, listeners to remember from this? Ooh, um, <laughs> that's a, that's a tough one. I want them to remember all of it. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's also fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say that the, the thing that I would want listeners to remember is that, um, you are not alone, uh, in, in experiencing sexual and domestic violence. It's very isolating. That's the whole, that's why it's so successful. Uh, you know, that, that that's why this idea of power and control is so successful because it's so isolating and somebody feels so alone and, and ashamed and it, it's just very um, othering. And um, if I could have everybody remember this is that you are not alone. There are other people that have gone through it and there are resources out there that, you know, can help you. Um, it may be a bumpy road to get where you need to go, um, 
but we are there to help. That's amazing. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. I, it, was a, it was a pleasure speaking with you both. On today's episode, we had a pleasure speaking with Natalie Wade, who is the Director of Domestic and Sexual Violence Programs at Doorways. We hope that you, you found the information useful. Thank you and have a great day.